0: What does the city of the future look like? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. A new life
1: awaits you in the off-world colonies. The chance to begin again in a golden land of opportunity and adventure.
0: When Ridley Scott envisioned the dystopian Los Angeles of 2019 in Blade Runner, he probably didn't think about how much energy would be needed to run those flying cars and sky-high animated billboards, or what it would be doing to the climate. We've now reached the year in which Blade Runner is set. Flying cars are still in the future, but with over half of the global population living in urban centers and another 2.5 billion expected to join them by 2050, maybe it's time to take a step backward when it comes to getting around the city. If you make more bicycle lanes and do it properly, you get more bicycles. And if you
2: invite people to walk more and use public spaces more, you get more life in the city. You get what you invite for.
0: Architect Jan Gehl was instrumental in helping to turn Copenhagen into one of the world's most livable cities. His people-centric approach has influenced urban planning throughout the world. But while disinviting cars from our city streets may sound like utopia for some, it could mean big problems for others. So if we've removed the car from a place, which actually a large number of people who don't
3: have access to public transit, who may not have access to the scooters or any of those things, are they able to actually get to where they need to go?
0: On today's program, we invite you to visit Tomorrowland with three forward-looking urban leaders. Jan Gale is a founding partner of Gale Architects and the author of Cities for People. Laura Crescimano is a co-founder and principal at Sight Lab Urban Studio. And Liz Ogbu is a designer, urbanist, and social justice advocate who founded Studio O. We're happy to present this program with Spur, a nonprofit promoting good planning and good government in the San Francisco Bay Area. When we talk about revitalizing our cities, making them more sustainable, climate-friendly and dynamic, it seems obvious that all of our citizens should expect to reap the benefits. But that hasn't always been the case, as Liz Ogbu explains. And so I think the challenge
3: is that when we talk about how are we going to actually achieve that, we often talk about being forward-looking and as if the present was point zero oftentimes there are communities that have been historically more harmed than others and who are suffering from the ills that have happened and if we don't take into account how are we addressing that as well as well as how are we addressing the challenges of the environment then often those communities will continue to get left behind and frankly they're the ones who are probably the most vulnerable from things that are coming up with climate change and so I basically ask how do we have a like past looking view as well as a forward looking view so sort of both and instead of either or
0: Let's talk about Detroit as an example of that. Jamon Jordan is president of the Detroit chapter of the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History. He also has deep family roots in a neighborhood that used to exist called Black Bottom. Jordan's grandparents, as well as his father, lived in Black Bottom before it was demolished in the 50s and 60s in a redevelopment project that created space for two new freeways, I-75 and I-375. Another adjacent neighborhood called Paradise Valley was also predominantly African-American and also demolished. Now, city officials are planning on removing the I-375 freeway to make Detroit's downtown more livable. Detroit's going through quite a revival. I think there's some, definitely some climate um, dimensions to the Detroit story. Sounds great. Well, Jamon Jordan says, not so fast.
1: When the discussion to build the freeway through Black Bottom and Paradise Valley was originally discussed in the 1950s, African Americans were against this. They knew that it was going to be further destruction and further removal of their residential communities, their schools, and, of course, their businesses. But it happened anyway, because African Americans in the city of Detroit at this time are politically powerless. So now what's happening in downtown Detroit now is a massive wave of development that is predominantly young white professionals who are moving in and working in the core downtown. And they are not only wanting to work there, they want to live there. The people who are living in that area won't be able to afford to move into this new district that's going to be built once they remove the freeway. When this is paved over and recreated as a residential and business district, it's not going to be inclusive, at least if we look at history. Had the government not got involved in destroying the Black community, the development in downtown Detroit would have been an African-American downtown development, because Paradise Valley was 350 Black-owned businesses in the 1930s, in 2019, there would be thousands of businesses in downtown Detroit. And so the architects and developers need to understand that they're not coming in to save Detroit. And they need to find a way to align themselves with what's already been going on, rather than coming in and seeing themselves as some sort of benefactors for the city.
0: That was Jamon Jordan, who runs Black Scroll Network History and Tours in Detroit. Liz I will your reaction to that? He's saying, you know, the past and the future.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think it echoes very much what I was saying before. I think if you look in a lot of... Major cities, particularly in the US, that um, in the great highway building boom of the 1950s, it just so happened that a lot of times the highways were often put through the African American communities, right? Like in the grand space of the city, that always ended up being the perfect place in which to put these highways, which was an intentional act. And so, having caused these communities to experience harm once, the idea that we're not looking at revitalization as a way to repair the harm, and we're sort of asking some of these communities to make a sacrifice again, or sort of assuming that there's, you know, we all kind of deride trickle-down economics, but it's sort of the same thing, right? Like, we'll do this investment, and it'll come down to these neighborhoods, but the truth of the matter is, if we don't intentionally say, how do the people who've been most harmed get to be the ones who benefit the most from these changes, then we're just going to be repeating this, and so I think, you know, approaching climate change, particularly when it comes to our cities, is this opportunity to do pretty major investments in a sort of significant retooling of cities, not just in the U.S., but around the world. And so I think it's time that we talk about how do we be intentional about those investments and who benefits, because I think the idea that we don't consider it doesn't mean that people don't get harmed.
4: I would add, add to that as well that, you know, those highway projects are a history of urban renewal, which was these massive moves that our country made, and that I think the risk in the removals of them is if they're done in a similarly sweeping manner that's top down and I think speaking to what Liz is saying that we want to look to the past and look to more than one voice in both the process but in what we're creating so that that we don't repeat those kinds of um, singular gestures that aren't going to actually build community.
0: Laura Cressamano, I want to also ask you. There's a battle in the streets for space going on, for curb space, for street space. We have scooters and delivery vehicles and, you know, uh, ride hailing. There's a real battle for urban street space. Tell us how that that's playing out here in the Bay Area and elsewhere. Because every time I turn around, there's some new thing on wheels, you know, <laughs> going around.
4: You know, it is a question, and a lot of people are wondering what is the future of transportation? How is it going to transform our cities? I think a lot of people debate is car free the better is our places better if they 're car free or not um, and I think one answer is that the cars aren 't necessarily going away just because they might be autonomous they're still cars <laughs> um, and they 're still going to take up space in our cities, so I think there 's a little bit of a kind of wish that it was a a magic bullet Um, and I think but what they can do we can think about how do we use that efficiency and what do we want our streets to look like and how can we start to reclaim some of the space so I think you know a, a kind of utilitarian mindset has made for wider roads faster cars more cars and we will just fill up as much of that you know and create more congestion but if we start to think about more modes and more ways to use it, and the curbside becomes really—I mean, we see so much drop-off and pickup right now, or bike share, or all of these other things, or just being able to, to you know, sit outside and have you know have the nature come into our cities more. That's what we want our streets to look like. So I think that it doesn't mean an eradication of cars, but it does mean a kind of reclaiming more thoughtfully how we use our streets.
0: Jan you were partly responsible for getting cars or limiting cars in Times Square in New York City, which is one of the iconic examples of push, you know, reclaiming, redistributing power and space between people who walk and people who drive. Tell us briefly the background of that and, and what you think of it today.
2: Yeah. Um, we were invited by, by Michael Bloomberg to uh, to come to New York to assist him. With his plan to make New York a sustainable metropole, the first really sustainable metropole in in the world, that was his vision. That was 2007, and they rushed to Copenhagen, actually, and spent some time there, some of them, uh, Janet Sadi Khan and uh, Amanda Burden and we could hardly get the bicycles away from them during the night. They wanted to take them into the hotel. <laughs> and in the end, we got the bicycles back from them at the airport, and they said, we want a city like this one. <laughs> and that was how we were involved in, in advising uh, about how they could uh, introduce more bicycles in New York. Uh, the mayor said, of course, that New York is perfect for bicycling, it's flat it 's compressed it 's got wide streets there are easily enough room for bicycle lanes, whatever. so he said that in my city, you can take my subway it 's the best in the world. You can walk on my sidewalks and you can have a new bicycle system. That was his vision, and we were working on that in this while we were working on this bicycle, whatever thing we started to think about that there were hardly any nice public spaces in New York. People were rushing all the time between the subway and the office. And then we talked about that, what about Charles uh, elysees of the Americas? What about having nice public spaces that they have here and there? And then we started to question whether they really needed Broadway for traffic. And, of course, the traffic planner said, yes, we do, and the <laughs> mayor said... Go and figure it out. And they came out a year later saying that we actually don't need Broadway for traffic. And then it, it was actually the traffic would be more smooth if we hadn't got Broadway. So that was a reason why they could change the Broadway. And we found in the Times Square, it was not a square, there were um, there were 11% of the area was de- de- uh, was dedicated to pedestrians. And ninety percent of everybody passing the square was on these eleven percent, while in ninety percent of the space were ten percent in cars, and that was the beginning of this thing that maybe we don't need all that asphalt. And that it was changed in two oh nine, and uh, and actually they made fifty other squares like that now, and it's so important that we give back asphalt to public activity in our cities, and that's what's going on all over the world, actually.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about designing cities to cope with a growing population and a warming world. Coming up, going beyond the quick fix. In San Francisco, there's this whole conversation about the seawall, right? Like, let's
3: fix the seawall, then everything will be fine. But it's sort of like, what do we want San Francisco 2050
0: to be like? That's up next when Climate One continues.
2: You're
3: listening to Climate One, so you realize that it's time to pull every lever we have to solve the climate crisis. Unfortunately, it's easy to overlook the impact that our investments have on the environment. Many investment funds support companies that cause harm to people and the planet. But it doesn't have to be that way. Change Finance offers investments that are fossil fuel free and align with your values without sacrificing returns. Go to change-finance.net slash climate to learn more and start investing today. Change Finance is a registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell any product.
0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about designing the sustainable and livable cities of tomorrow. My guests are urban designers Jan Gale, Liz Ogbu, and Laura Cresimano. Earlier, Jan Gale was talking about ways to make cities more welcoming to people than to cars. Some would have us get rid of the automobile altogether. But as I asked Liz Ogbu, is that even realistic?
3: Part of the the challenge when we talk about how do we address these things is we often go for these single point. Solutions, right? Let's remove the cars, right? And that that will solve it. And I, I guess I'm curious, how do we ask the larger question? And I think that points to what Laura was saying, of like aspirationally, where are we trying to get to, right? And what are the pieces that need to happen to be able to support that? So, for like, say, Times Square you were asking, what is it that we're trying to get to in terms of an experience? And what are the pieces that need to happen in order to support that? So if car-free does plug into that, I think that's great. The one question I always ask when we sort of remove cars is, are we addressing people's other mobility needs, right? So if we've removed the car from a place, which actually a large number of people who don't have access to public transit, who may not have access to the scooters or any of those things, are they able to actually get to where they need to go? And so so it goes back to that like how are we making sure that, that we understand the repercussions of every move that we're making in the name of sustainability and so it's not about not being sustainable it's making sure that everybody can benefit from what we're doing.
0: Laura Cressamano, you know so if, if car freeze is, is too simple what's the balance of this power between you know people cars because mm-hmm. the real idea is Network ride-hailing companies have increased traffic and congestion. The data shows that in San Francisco. So the idea that this ride-hailing is going to have fewer cars, that means more cars, more
4: traffic. Right. And the same thing goes for autonomous vehicles. So I, that <clears throat> idea that they will create efficiency if it can be more systematized in cars if we could be controlled on the highway or on the roadways, they will move more efficiently than uh, we as humans do. But we will fill that. We will just fill that with more cars. So there is a kind of... Um, uh, you know, I think there's a catch 22 there that we have to think about other modes, um, you know, whether it's bicycles, whether it's walking, whether it's other forms of transit and micro mobility, and making those appealing and accessible and affordable choices. Um, and I think that's going to be really hard because the more. Um, technology advances, the more the convenience and the cost will go down on point to point. And so what we, I think, all love about the what transit can do um, for a city to move large numbers of people around is going to have to compete with a very... Um, A a difficult dynamic, I would say, that that a number of people have access to, but maybe not all people.
0: So Liz Ogbu, let's think about that big picture, how cities, the world is urbanizing. They need to fundamentally change for climate. They're being hammered by severe weather. Questions about whether they're rebuilt, how they're rebuilt, for whom. So take that on, that big challenge of rethinking cities for the era of climate change.
3: So, I mean, I I think Jan is right that the, the question needs to be bigger, Right. And so in in our cities, whenever we're taking on a new project or let's let's say in San Francisco, there's this whole conversation about the seawall. Right. Like, I think that goes again to this like single point solution. Let's fix the seawall. Then everything will be fine. But it's sort of like, what do we want San Francisco 2050 to be like? What what is the quality of life that we want to be there? How do we want those who have struggled to be able to get a good quality of life to be able to benefit if we think about the differences that are happening between rich and poor right now it's like how do we want to heal the divides that are coming through that and if we can start to lay out what that is aspirationally then we can start to talk about all right so what does that mean in terms of how do we live together in community how do we move from place to place how do we enable somebody to be able to get to their job regardless of whether they're a tech bro working for you know twitter or if they're working like a a sort of um, hard labor on the construction of the next new tower like how are they actually able to live in this city and so i think unless we're starting to willing to ask those questions and what are the investments that we're willing to do and the trade-offs that we're willing to do to be able to support that i think it's harder we'll just keep on being like how do we create faster cars or do autonomous vehicles or you know get the next solar technology Um, so i think it's it's set it up like that and then the other things flow from that
0: Lord Crisomano, one thing that's been constant, you know, that the coastline is going to be dynamic. The coastline has been basically in the same place for human civilization. That's changing. Um, You think that some places need to be enjoyed today that might be sacrificed in the future. We can't be too conservative. So tell us about that relationship. I
4: agree, and I think it builds on what Liz said, which is, I think, moving away from a philosophy about speed and convenience, right, to what kind of place we want to be living in um, and how that place can um, reveal itself to us, say, so that we understand the climate change, or we understand the ecosystem that's underneath, or even the fact that underneath is not an ecosystem; it's it's a it's fill, um, say, in the case of some of San Francisco's coastline. So one of the things um, we looked at in a project that we worked on with um, for San Francisco, along the, uh, its port-owned, its former shipbuilding land at Pier Seventy, was you know that you have to. Um, to mitigate for climate change right so the site is lifted but instead of saying we're going to remove access to the water can we allow for certain areas particularly areas that had historic peers to be at a lower level to enjoy today. And then just kind of incrementally build up. And so that may be gone tomorrow, right? But you protect, so you have levels of protection. So maybe certain aspects, isn't it, you know, accessible path and access at the water. There might be a bike path that's a little bit higher, you know, and that could get moved up. And then the building's even higher. So you start to think it's not one size fits all and it's not one experience. It's not just what's going to be the safe experience 50 years from now. But what's the, how do we evolve with climate change as well. I think
2: it's very important, uh, this discussion, that how can we prepare for the raising water? I think that's one discussion, but at the same time we shall work very hard to prevent it from raising as best we can and uh, actually maybe some of the discussion about how high the dikes can be will, will take the focus away from the main problem, that is that we should not accept the climate change which will raise the water that much so we all will have to live like the dutch and i should say that the dutch they are living three meters under water level now and done that for hundreds of years and they have a rather good life so that can be made (laughs) that can be made but we shall actually do whatever we can to prevent Mm -hmm. that situation as best we can and then we have to think radically about a number of things I come from Copenhagen, where they, over the last 50 years, have managed a lot of things to make it a better city for people, more livable, and also uh, definitely much more climate-friendly. They're not at all there yet, but I could mention that 41% of everybody going to work in Copenhagen uh, go there on the bicycle, uh, just as one example. And uh, they have two policies Two official policies. We will be the best city for people in the world. That is about walking and public spaces. And we will be the best city for bicycling in the world. That is about making infrastructure for bicycle, which is really safe and inviting. And that has led to more and more people bicycling. Uh, we know that if you invite more cars, you get more cars. If you invite uh, make streets, you get more traffic. <laughs> yep. And if you get make more bicycle lanes and do it properly, you get more bicycles. And if you invite people to walk more and use public spaces more, you get more life in the city. It's the same mechanism. Mm -hmm. You get what you invite for. And we have invited for uh, for for actually for a number of years, hundred years, we've invited for more traffic generally. And we have to change that, even if we can have smart cars or Mm -hmm. we can have uh, autonomic cars, whatever. um, The whole focus on mobility, uh, we have to be much more interested in making good places to live rather than good
0: places to move. We're discussing the future of cities in the era of climate disruption and growing urban populations. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests are Laura Crasimano, co-founder and principal at Site Lab Urban Studio. Jan Gale, an urban design consultant and architect. And Liz Ogbu, a designer, urbanist, and advocate for social justice. Uh, Liz Ogbu, let's think about uh, what climate change is going to bring. It's going to be hotter. Mm-hmm. It's going to be more volatile. Uh, there's going to be some movement of people, there's, there's dislocation. What, what's, you, you know, what does that look like for those cities who are able to, to be flexible and adapt to those kinds of shocks that, that, that climate is, are punching cities with?
3: I think that's a really good question, and I'm not entirely sure. I think that's kind of why we're all trying to put our heads towards it. I think you know, if we look at some of the major disasters that have been happening, whether it's the flooding that's been happening in the Midwest or things like Hurricane Katrina, or even um, you know, Cape Town uh, a year or two ago had that giant water crisis, right? And so it's what is the ability of these places to be able to withstand those shocks um but also like how do we make sure that resilience can actually happen on a day-to-day basis so that they are prepared when that that is happening i think if we actually are able to do our job and create some radical solutions then i think it means that we're just living differently right like clearly this is not a tech a technology issue right if It was a technology issue we probably would have solved it right we've invented all sorts of things to be able to fix it and so it's really about how do we live our lives from day to day and what kind of sacrifices are we willing to make and so i think it might mean that our footprint is less right like maybe we aren't traveling so radically as much as we are i think it's us learning how we're consuming less resources which might mean that we reconstruct how we set up value all of those things to me are things that we would have to start to to take on to be able to make changes but you know we're we're a society that sent somebody to the moon right like we have the ability to dream something that seems really impossible and I just think that right now a lot of our attempts have been more of like just over to here instead of over to here or instead of something that we can't even see yet and so I think Asking what would it mean to live radically? What would it mean to have a lesser footprint is something that we maybe don't have the answer to right now? But it's something that we actually just need to start thinking about because clearly we've seen where this road is probably going to lead us and it's not It's where there's going to be a lot more
4: suffering than what we've already seen And you also describe that as I think it's important as it's a way of living, right? How do we live differently? So I don't think the solution as you said is purely it's not a technological one It's also not about how we design. It's not going to be all about physical uh, structures. Um, So much is about how we create opportunities for community and connection. And resilience is about uh, connections between people. (laughs) Like, who do you turn to when something happens? Is there someone that's going to check on you or share their resources with you? And how do we create? And that's that some of those things are physical, you know, being a place that people would bump into each other on the street, and some of those go far beyond the physical into, um, you know, our policies, our, uh, you know, the ways we interact and what we kind of the opportunities that that people have.
0: Laura Cressimano, all over this country, there are uh, projects being built near the water that are basically based on business as usual. Mm-hmm. I was in Miami recently, and the, world, the tallest uh, skyscraper in Miami is going in right, right by the water. What responsibility do architects and engineers have for designing and creating buildings that they must know cannot withstand the plumbing climate shocks? Mm-hmm.
4: It's a tricky thing for architects and designers, because I think so often architects are late in the chain. The project brief has been created. Build this building on this plot of land. It should be this tall and do these things. and so I think part of it is one for architects to be able to advocate or set boundaries. Um, there've, you know There have been all kinds of programs, architects that you know um, rallied together to you know as to to all sign off to say they wouldn't build prisons, for example. Like there are groups that resist um, from certain typologies. Uh, And I would say the more that, you know, as part of uh, why I chose urban design versus architecture was to try to go upstream in the decision making. And so if we can get there earlier in the choices, maybe there's a different choice that could deliver the value that the person trying to build that building is looking for at the same time as find maybe a different choice than one that might you know and might not consider everything.
2: And a lot no. of decisions of this kind is made on the basis of if I don't take this commission a guy which is not so good a designer as I will come and take <laughs> it mm. and I think it's crap. Um,
0: <laughs>
2: um, yeah
0: <laughs> <That's good. laughs>
1: Too.
2: So
0: what responsibility d- then, Jan Gale, do designers and urban thinkers have to kind of really, you know, cities are kind of, you know, looked to as the as the, the vanguard where change can happen because nation states is so big and international diplomacy is so slow. S- people are looking to cities to lead the charge on climate. And yet things are moving slowly, not radical enough. What can be done to wake people up and get them to move faster, more boldly?
2: Um, I have this experience. Uh, from Copenhagen, actually, because uh, we have found out that it's not the individual architect who shall uh, stand up, that it cannot be made because there are developers and real estate agents and whatever, politicians and money and whatever. We have to make, change the mindset, change the way people think and that mm-hmm. I have found uh, that by research and and finding out uh, how things are put, are put together and changing the way people think. We have done that in Copenhagen over 50 years now, and it's had a fantastic influence. So that the the mayor would say that all of us, we have changed now the mindset from the mayor to the younger students, that we shall build cities in another way. And then we can start as architects to, to build. We need to have the evidence. We need to have the documentation and... Uh, we have seen that. So I would always say change the mindsets and the, mind, the change mindset will change the cities. But you cannot sort of step over that uh, about information and documentation about what the implications would be. You have, there has to be research and understanding of what we are dealing with rather than going for the individual uh, architect or building project and say this can be should not be happening so we have to dig deeper again
0: you're listening to a climate one conversation about the cities of the future this is climate one coming up should designers play a role in solving homelessness
3: it's not necessarily that it falls on us to fix it but like we have to participate in the conversation it's a challenge that requires all hands on deck and everybody who plays a role in shaping the built environment has a role to play in
0: solving this. That's up next when Climate One continues. I'm doing
3: all right, getting good grades. the future's so bright. I gotta wear shades. I gotta wear shades.
0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about building sustainable cities that make public life healthier, more inclusive, and more dynamic. My guests are leaders in urban design and planning, Liz Ogbu of Studio O, Jan Gale of Gale Architects, and Laura Cresimano of SiteLab Urban Studio. Laura says that the role cities play in public health has been a matter of growing concern.
4: It's an intersection of public health, environmental justice, and design in cities. And I think there's a great opportunity, even looking very closely, you know, there have been experiments to look at evidence-based design and to say, You know, there was research done to say hospital patients, patients from a surgery after surgery. If you put one group of those patients in rooms without a window and one group in a room in rooms that have views of nature, the ones with the view actually recovered faster, clinically recovered faster and had fewer complications. So there is there is data. It's very hard at the city scale to you know, isolate all of these variables. But I think we have instincts around that, too. And there's a lot of there is a lot of work being done. And I think the more particularly I think about contact with nature, right? That's something that we often divide that there are cities and urbanism. And then there's kind of nature over here. Um, And that's something that we know is restorative um, in many ways and is educational and is, you know, (laughs) climate resilient in many ways. So I think there's, there's a lot of work being done to bridge those together, whether it's community and social health or literal physical health.
3: And there are a couple of coalitions um, ar- around the world. There are a couple of different coalitions that are funding this kind of work in the U.S. There's Spark, which is like bringing together environmental justice, health um, design. Uh, there's also uh, Building Healthy Places, which is an initiative looking at that within community development. But I think one of the things that is making this possible is that people are also taking risk. Right. Like that. Some of the challenges that we have in doing development of any kind of project is that if we do something outside of the norm, which goes to this point of like clients not wanting to take this on and baking it up, it becomes really hard. And so I think these initiatives are starting to show fruit because it's people willing to take risk and say how do we put together a team that's different than the teams that we normally think of of how to do these projects? How do we allow ourselves to ask different questions to hold ourselves up to different levels of success? And even the example that you talked about within Times Square, initially some of New York's work was really like Let's just try it in one place. And then now it has sprung into this large program that is across the city. And so I think part of getting at climate change is not and and addressing it isn't necessarily saying let's go for the big kahuna all at once. But it's sort of saying what are ways that we can prototype uh, innovation or risk that we actually take this intentional thinking. We take different ways of approaching a problem um, and, and allow ourselves room to fail. Right, because I think if we try to stay within our safe zones, we're never going to fix this. And so some of it is like, how do we bring the people that allow us to take risk? How do we find the money that allows us to invest in a little bit of risk and see where we can get to
4: and then basically expand that? Or find the easy wins. I mean, I think in New York, it's yeah. a great example that many you know, smaller streets, they just put boulders or huge planters at the ends to close them off. That was it. And chairs you know, just to prove that it could work, that the traffic was fine around it. And that, you know, those are those low risk when people say, well, it hasn't been done anywhere. I'm not going to invest all this money or it's too risky. Are there ways to kind of get around that to demonstrate?
2: I think it's very important. uh, People in cities live longer than people in suburbs, which is now found out in a very big worldwide uh, uh, research project. And that's because in the cities they walk more, and there are more stairs. In the suburbs they sit more, and there are more cars, and there are more driving. And we we know now we have um, we have now from the doctors a very strong uh, a c- a commitment to the city planners, because they say now we have a serious. Uh, sickness in the populations which is sitting syndrome that people are sitting too much in their life. We know that if you sit uh, and if, if you do one hour of moderate exercise a day then you could live seven years longer and if you don't you have a very lousy end of your life and you are very costly for the society and that is why the World Health Organization say Make sure whatever you do, uh, make sure that people are invited to walk and bicycle as much as possible in, in the daily day situation instead of sitting all the time. We have actually now for 50 years done everything to uh, make everybody sit as much as possible. The suburbs are basically built on the idea of cheap gasoline and sitting, enjoying the cheap gasoline. And... We have to rethink that also for the health of, of the population so we can live a bit longer, but primarily have a better quality of life when we get older. We have to do 10,000 steps in my age.
0: <laughs> that's, that's far, that far I can teach no you. No more park benches. OK. Um. <laughs> We're going to go to audience questions. But first, I would be remiss, Jan Gale, if uh, we talked about cities and urbanism, because without mentioning homelessness, because many people will hear this and say climate, yes, but cities have a particularly San Francisco has a deep homelessness problem. And we're talking about all these things. And there's you walk by it every day. A little bit of us dies every time we walk past a person on the street. And we don't feel that. Can homelessness be solved by design while climate at the same time? Or is that a different problem, not for designers and architects to address?
2: Um, yeah, and maybe not for European, uh, from the part of the world where I come from, where it's not, uh, not at all that much of a problem. So
0: I should ask the Americans so, here to solve the American yeah, problem? Yeah, you solve yeah. your
2: problems here. <laughs> um, but um, definitely it's a political problem. It's a social economic problem, which is not what designers really have the tools to address. Uh, It has to be addressed by putting demands to the politicians to make a housing policy and uh, hospital policy and whatever, so that this problem will not be allowed to grow. It's political.
3: I would say yes and. So I think that when we, I mean, as designers, we are caretakers of the built environment and we're usually getting the hire to do some project that is intersecting with that population. And if we say that we should not be at the table as part of that conversation, then we're complicit and what gets created when it's not addressed. So for me, it's not necessarily that it falls on us to fix it, but like we have to participate in the conversation. And yes, it goes to um, politicians and other folks that are involved in the problem, but I think it's a challenge that requires all hands on deck, and everybody who plays a role in shaping the built environment has a role to play in solving this.
0: Laura, are there some projects that are made in, uh, inhospitable to you know, homeless people? To, you know, there, there's benches that are made where people can't sleep on them, that sort of thing? Is, there, is that part of the design well, process?
4: I would say those are inhospitable to people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that, you know, I, you know, I wouldn't, I don't support those kinds of approaches. And I think that it is, you know, it's a, it's a human dignity issue, right? And I think to Liz's point, it's how, how do we want to show up? Um, And treat each other. And what can we do about that? But I think it also is as described, you were describing kind of as the resistance revolution, right? I think the revolution is at a political level. And the resistance is at a, you know, in, you know, some of our work is just what can we do, whether it's in our public spaces to say these, like, you know, our public spaces should be welcoming to all right? Um, They should feel safe to all. And what can we do to help support that? And some of that is design and some of that is um, advocating for other nonprofit organizations and groups to be a part of the conversation besides us. Um, So I think it's much more about that and how we can You know, really, we're designing cities for people. (laughs) So, um, how do we do that for all people?
0: To be inclusive and address climate change. We're talking with Laura Crescimano, Jan Gale, and Liz Ogbu at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
3: Hi, I'm Eris. And I was wondering how you propose to get youth involved in climate and design. Great question. Liz Ogbu. Um, So, uh, actually, in almost All the projects that I am working on, uh, youth actually play an important role because they usually are a significant percentage of the population that we're dealing with. And I often find that people don't ask youth what they want to see, even though they're like, we want to benefit them. So um, one of the things that I do personally as part of my design process is make sure that we actually carve a role for youth of all ages. Like, I'll take a five-year-old, they still have something to say about the space that they want to be able to live in, um, and actually set up an opportunity for to say what they want to see in the space. And I'll kind of translate it to be what it needs to be for us to design the thing. So for example, in um, Bayview-Hunters Point here in San Francisco, we did a lot of work um, where we had uh, kids just come and be architects for the day At our site Um, and then out of that we were able to say okay this many kids ask for things having to do with um, nature and in particular interactivity with nature this many kids ask for things having to do with growing food and we were able to then take that and integrate it into the design so I think it's about creating design processes that leave room for youth to come at the table and actually give value to that voice. Um, and I think what's great about what you guys are doing and then also about what we're seeing around is that the youth are being loud. Adults are kind of idiots. Um, and 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 we're doing a pretty good job of mucking up the place. And I think that you guys are making your voices heard and not waiting for us to ask you. And I think you should continue to do that. Because I think if you wait, then we're not going to talk to you until you're our age and you're a so, um, you know, con- continue to speak up. Next question, welcome. Hi there. My question is um, you know, I think for many of us here in the Western developed world, sustainable community driven cities are definitely ideal and something that we'd like to aspire to. But I certainly think about the many folks in the rest of the world um, living in places like Mexico City, Dhaka, Beijing. Places that seem like big ironies because air pollution's awful, environmental pollution, you know, environmental crises are everywhere in these cities, but many people are driven to them for better economic prospects. So for these types of cities, ultimately in the long term, are we going to see their eventual decline because, you know, the, these environmental problems catch up with them and the populace sort of realizes, well, we're almost killing ourselves by living here. Or are we going to see some continued growth from these cities that kind of outpace what we believe
2: um, is ideal for a city to be? Um, Firstly, we should be happy that, that we see the cities grow and the urban population are growing, because it's much more likely and much more easy to address the climate issues if you have concentrations of people and can organize the heating and the garbage and the sewers and whatever. There, there's less waste, so th- generally the urbanisation is better for the climate than spreading out. Um, but you're raising another question, that is that we can talk about San Francisco and the, and other places in America or Europe, but the real problems of urbanisation and also the real challenges to the climate are to be found in in uh, Africa, especially in Africa and Southeast Asia, in the fast-growing cities, which are growing enormously quickly. Um, and also there, is it, that's not the place where we can expect some um, technical gimmicks, which uh, automatic this or smart that, that will be expensive and that will never be used for 20 or 30 million people in lagers. Uh, and there we will have, as I think we should do worldwide, much more to rely on the idea that man is a walking animal and that we have got muscles and we can do a lot of things. And actually, that's very climate friendly. And so making walkable and bicycle neighborhoods uh, could also be, which they have tried in some third, third world countries with great uh, results, that is a very good to base city planning on man rather than put man into some technological something.
3: Can I sure add two points? One, I think that Um, in some ways it's hard to isolate what's happening in many of those countries from the Western world, right? Because some of the things that they're dealing with are a byproduct of the way in which we live. So to place all of the burden on them addressing it, I think is the wrong place to go. It's still just going to have to be a global solution. We're going to have to talk about how we in the Western world are making some sacrifices to enable those countries that are disproportionately receiving the burden of us living our life actually being able to exist. And then the other thing is that actually if you look a lot in the global south that there are actually a lot of innovations that have kind of come over time based on those resource constraints so long before all of us had smartphones and cell phones it was actually you know i was using it in south africa long before we were still using these giant bricks here which only like wealthy ceos could do right or even figuring out how to send money um, via your phone you know we talk about venmo and all that stuff now And PESA was coming up in Kenya long before we even thought that we could send money by phone. So out of their resource constraints, there's actually a tremendous amount of ingenuity that is on the ground. And that's not to sort of say that there are not deep challenges that need to be addressed, but it's also to sort of say maybe some of what we're looking at in terms of innovation might be found in these places where they have had less resources and have to figure out how to actually make by because they don't have access to the wealth or the technology that we do.
0: I want to end on a positive yep. note, upbeat note. Liz Ogbu, <laughs> tell us something that's really exciting, something that you see that's uh, inspiring the change at the speed necessary, even if it's on a small scale, Speed change at the speed necessary to address the climate crisis.
3: KDI is doing some really innovative projects in the Eastern Coachella Valley down in Southern California and also in Nairobi, Kenya, where um, they 're actually taking communities that have disproportionately been impacted not only by like harm but some of the challenges that are coming out of not having access to mobility options or um, particularly susceptible to like flooding, so taking um, Kibera, which is one of the largest slums in nairobi, and they 're actually working with community members to both measure and accurately assess what's going on and then training people in the whole climate conversation so that they can be able to advocate for themselves. Uh, and so I think that that idea of how are we working with people and giving them the tool to be able to kind of come and participate in these conversations and not just letting that be the people like many of us in the room who actually frankly have some privilege and probably should be doing this, um, but also those who are perhaps the ones most impacted. And so I think that's super exciting and I, I think we should be looking towards some of those examples as how we can mobilize towards change, and also i 'm super inspired by the youth
0: young Gail, mm-hmm. something that, that even if it 's a small scale, a bright spot that gives you hope I was thinking about
2: the, I see a lot of things uh, of initiatives being very very fine and and they 're too slow, but it, all these things are, are good the The new world goals the seventeen world goals of the United Nations. That's fantastic that they can decide that, and we can start to advocate that. We can see the C40, the mayors of the major cities of the world saying that the jerks in our capitals are slow, but we in the cities where the problems come from, we will have to act. It will start it by. By Bloomberg, actually, but now it's going on and going on, and it's not 40 anymore; it's 90 uh, males who who uh, inspire each other, and it's too slow. But behind this is that it we need to be inspired by each other. There's so much going on. I can just mention that in Denmark, on a good day with wind, we can have 110% of our energy coming from windmills. Um, so, and, and they are working on, of course, that by 2:30 there shall be no need for, for other energy than the renewable energy. We, we can see a lot of things going on. It's too slow, but we can learn from it from each other and we have to speed it up. And there's so much interesting things going on, as you also say.
0: Laura Cressimano, Bright sure. Spots.
4: Bright Spots. Two I will mention, and I, you know, one speaks to youth. You know, the the Rockefeller Foundation funded um, major competitions and efforts both on the East Coast and West Coast, um, kind of re- rebuild by design after Hurricane Sandy and resilient by design trying to get out ahead of um, a major event in the Bay Area. And, uh, you know, a tremendous amount of talent and and brain power went into that and the two two projects i I remember hearing about that i thought were the most interesting were ones that went into the schools and actually did workshops with kids and part of that is to learn from the kids but also to empower the kids because this is multi-generational and i think that thinking about this not as just what can we do right now but how can we change change a sensibility um is huge. And I think that also, to me, the other bright spot is thinking that even that we're having a conversation about uh, a Green New Deal, right, in the U.S. And, you know, you could debate the specifics, but that, that we can see younger politicians and veteran politicians starting to align in a way that I don't think we have before.
0: You've been listening to Climate One, We've been talking about building sustainable, resilient cities for the future. My guests were Laura Cressimano of Sight Lab Urban Studio, Liz Ogbu of Studio O, and Yon Gale, author of Cities for People. This program was presented with SPUR, a nonprofit promoting good planning and good government in the San Francisco Bay Area. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.